0: i'm bonnie Glaser, director of the indo-pacific program at the german marshall fund of the united states welcome to the china global podcast according to estimates by the international monetary fund 60 percent of low-income countries are now in or at high risk of debt distress double the number in 2015. zambia defaulted on its public debt two years ago Sri Lanka, Ghana, Ethiopia, and Pakistan have already defaulted or are on the cusp of doing so. In all these cases, China is a significant creditor. China's lending for projects in other countries between 2000 and 2017 totaled more than $800 billion. In the past five years, Beijing's lending has tapered off, but it has left a trail of unsustainable debt. China's role in sovereign debt restructuring is under scrutiny and criticism. Beijing has been reluctant to participate in multilateral debt restructuring unless the World Bank and other regional development banks also agree to write down their own loans. The World Bank dismisses that demand, arguing that development bank financing already comes with low interest rates and doesn't add significantly to a country's debt burden. What is China's approach to debt relief and should it be doing more? To discuss this issue, we're delighted to have with us today, Jeremy Mark. Jeremy's a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlanta Council's Geoeconomics Center, where he writes on developing country debt and U.S.-China issues. He worked in Asia for the Wall Street Journal early in his career and as a communication specialist for the International Monetary Fund for over two decades, where he was responsible for the IMF's communications in Africa and Asia. Welcome to the China Global Podcast, Jeremy.
1: Thank you so much, Bonnie. I'm really pleased to be with you today.
0: So we know that China has provided a significant amount of funding for debt bailouts to its loan recipient countries. There was one study published last March that reported that China provided bailouts totaling $240 billion between 2008 and 2021. And nearly half of that was granted um, between 2019 and 2021. And interestingly, those bailout funds went to 22 countries. So how do you assess China's involvement in international bailout activities? And can you explain why China's chosen this bilateral approach over multilateral solutions?
1: You know, Bonnie, the first thing to, to point out is that if you add those two big figures you've just listed, $800 billion and $240 billion together, and assume there's some overlap, China is still looking at outstanding loans of nearly a trillion dollars to the world. And as wealthy as China is, surely that amount has to keep a lot of people in Beijing up at night, either because they're the ones who made the loans or they're the ones who are going to have to figure out how to restructure all of this bad debt that's now emerging. Um, really, what China is doing, which you referred to as bailouts, is not bailouts. It's, it's essentially kicking the can down the road. I a bailout, maybe this is me coming from an IMF background talking, but a bailout suggests a solution to a debt crisis. It's not just new money, but it's it's restructuring loans, it's possibly lenders taking haircuts, and it's countries implementing reforms that can help get, get the economy back on track and make the debt sustainable. And really, all that China is doing right now is delaying a day of reckoning, in some cases, over and over again. Pakistan's a good example of that. Um, now, on the question of multilateral versus bilateral solutions, we'll get into various aspects of this, I suspect, as we talk. But the key point here has always been that China is most comfortable in its international developments when it's proceeding on a track that is distinct or autonomous from other lenders and aid providers. The problem now is that the scale of both China's lending and the debt crisis itself has reached a point that it's really no longer feasible for Beijing to proceed without reference to all the other lenders in the world. And that means multilateral solution.
0: The issue of Beijing participating in some multilateral activities to deal with this growing global debt, in 2020, it appeared that China was going to participate when it backed the common framework, and that was an agreement between the G20 and the Paris Club. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about whether that was the beginning of a process or it was just something on paper that Beijing really didn't follow up on. And recently, uh, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen made some really stark comments. She charged that China has been a roadblock to necessary action in debt restructuring. So is that a fair accusation?
1: I think it's a fair accusation, uh, but I, I think it's useful to sort of put it in the context of what's happened since 2020. Bonnie, the common framework was an important achievement because it was the first time that China had agreed to the principle of negotiating debt restructuring uh, in cooperation with other lenders. Uh, and, and this was really a breakthrough when it occurred. But since that point, there's been very little progress. And it's very hard to say that the common framework has been a success. I mean, four countries have defaulted on their debt and have sought to use the framework. Only one Chad has reached an agreement. The other three are stalled for various reasons. Now, one key problem is that the common framework only addresses bilateral government creditors. But there's a lot of debt out there that's held, for example, by private sector lenders, eurobond holders, banks, commodities traders. Their role is not defined in the framework and trying to include them in negotiations or in the process has proved to be very difficult. Uh, there have also been questions about the role of the multilateral institutions like the World Bank. We can come to that a little later. Um, there are other flaws and ambiguities in the in the process as well, and I think frankly that China has taken advantage of them to drag its feet and I think that 's why you 're hearing uh officials like Janet Yellen level accusations at China at this point, because China really has been a roadblock in many respects. The issues are, are varied. There's questions of, of transparency on the debt that's held or the terms. Uh, there's There are issues of, of whether countries are going to accept a haircut. Uh, and everybody's looking at everybody else to see if they're going to get a special deal. They call this comparability of treatment, and that delays things. Now, at this point, there have been reports recently of progress, for example, in the negotiations with Zambia, and we're given regular assurances that an agreement is near. But the experience so far has not, I think, proceeded in a way that gives other countries in debt distress confidence that they could enter into the common framework and come out of it with, with a debt reduction.
0: So, another um, element of this also occurred in 2020. That's when the IMF and the World Bank introduced the Debt Service Suspension Initiative, or the DSSI. And China apparently contributed 63% of all debt service suspensions and accounting for 30% of all its claims before that initiative ended about 18 months ago. So is that an example of a constructive role that China was playing by being active in DSSI? And how should we understand that instance? Is it a circumstance in which China was willing to join multilateral debt relief efforts and why?
1: I think, yes, it was a positive achievement. Um, And I think we have to keep in mind, the reason that DSSI and Common Framework came about was because the debt situation got so much worse so quickly once the global pandemic hit in 2020. And countries really were were in desperate need of resources to address the impact of that crisis. The moratorium on debt service, other words, essentially, countries did not have to pay interest or any principal payments that were due. That moratorium gave many countries more resources to respond to the crisis, crisis, and that was important. Now, I don't think that this posed a problem for China. I think the the achievement was getting them to agree to this in a multilateral context. But China itself has, for a long time, uh, been quite willing to give countries moratoriums on On debt service and payments of principal, as long as they eventually make those payments. It's very much in their toolbox to do this. So China was comfortable with DSSI once it made the decision to cooperate with other lenders. I think the real issue has to come with the next step, which involves the, the actual restructuring of the debt and the possibility of haircuts and anything like that is is a decision that is in China is made at the level of the state council
0: Can you tell us briefly what a haircut is?
1: A haircut essentially is a country is a is a lender agreeing that it's not going to be paid back everything that it has lent let's say um you know I've lent you hundred dollars you're having a hard time I say fine, you can give me back eighty dollars that's a haircut.
0: So I want to fast forward to the recently held spring meetings by the World Bank and the IMF and this was of course in mid April and there was growing pressure in the run up to these meetings by western lenders calling for China to accept some losses on these uh, on their overseas loans and uh, there weren't really a lot of details that came out of the out of the meeting Uh, but there were some at least headlines that Beijing seems to be more willing to cooperate with other parties over sovereign debt restructuring. Uh, So what, what do you think actually came out of these meetings? And do you think if China's stance now is more cooperative, is this a case where international pressure is actually having a positive effect?
1: There's no question that China's under tremendous pressure right now on this issue. We're hearing it from the U.S. and other G7 countries. It's coming, for example, from India, which holds the G20 presidency this year. And I have no doubt that that countries that owe Beijing money are very diplomatically and carefully lobbying Beijing to show more flexibility. So I don't think it was any surprise that that Beijing was making nice noises uh, when it came when Yi Gang, the the central bank governor, came to Washington for the meetings. Um, and I think it's worth pointing out that when Janet Yellen met with former Vice Premier Vice Premier Liu He in January in Davos, he said many similar things about China's willingness to address the issue. I, I think it comes now to the question of when China will act and how much it's willing to give on the debt reduction what happened at the meetings themselves i think was and a colleague of mine said this i thought it was it was it was very it was good it was a good insight what happened was much more about process than progress you know they met they they're having serious discussions on debt on details of various issues like for example transparency which i touched on and they agreed that they're going to all be more transparent whether that's progress it's too soon to really say but I, I think it's important just to remind people what is really at stake here, which is that there's a human cost to all of these delays, that there are millions of people in the developing world who've fallen back into extreme poverty uh, over the past few years because of COVID, because of, of the sharp increase in global inflation. And the, more it, the longer it takes to reach agreement on debt relief that might provide more resources, the more human pain there's going to be.
0: Uh, that's that's a great point. Another question that I wanted to ask um, uh, relates to why Beijing is insistent that multilateral lenders must take losses and accept write-downs and whether Beijing might compromise on this stance. Uh, apparently, in the lead up to the World Bank and IMF meetings, there were some reports that China might drop this demand. Then, of course, Beijing just announced something, it was called something like a vague three-point plan at the Global Sovereign Debt Roundtable on April 12th, uh, which included a call for multilateral creditors uh, quote, to come up with solutions on their participation in debt treatment as soon as possible. So it still sounds um, very vague, um, uh, not really telling us what Beijing is, is willing to do. But can you help us to understand why China insists that multilateral lenders take these losses and accept write downs?
1: Well, I think the bottom line is it's been basically a diplomatic delaying tactic on China's part. Uh, China, as I said, is under a lot of pressure, and it serves its purpose to to point fingers in other directions while these issues are being worked out. But, but beneath that, I think there are some, some very important issues that, that we can talk about. Lenders like the World Bank and the African Development Bank and the other multilateral development banks are a key part of the overall debt picture. The IMF is not one of these MDBs. These, these multilateral lenders in that sense, but it's also, I think, uh, one of the institutions that the China is talking about. These institutions generally provide poor countries with low income loan, I'm sorry, with low interest rate loans, uh, sometimes at zero interest rates. They also give grants, but a portion of their lending comes at higher rates, more you know, essentially commercial rates, which, by the way, is where most of China's lending is. You know, a lot of the Chinese loans these days are charging 5% a year. Uh, if the IMF gives a loan to Zambia, it's going to be at a zero interest rate and and world banks will be very close to that. But it is in China's interest to talk about a comprehensive debt restructuring Uh, process that includes the multilateral institutions. But when it raises this issue behind closed doors, I'm told that by and large, most governments just are not willing to support China. It's largely on its own, let's say, at the executive board of the IMF. Uh, I think it's also important to point out that the IMF, the World Bank, and the others are giving loans to countries in crisis when nobody else is doing it. Most, for example, most of what China is giving in the what we called bailout loans before uh, is going to middle income countries like Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Egypt, Argentina. The real poor countries are not getting these loans. And there's a danger that if the IMF and World Bank start free, um, you know, writing down a lot of debt, they'll have less money for these countries when nobody else will give it. But, you know, the 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 uh, real point, I think, is that China is seeking to get levels of concession that can demonstrate that it is, when it gives, it's also getting something. So I think where you, what you might see is the new World Bank president, who will be, probably be coming in fairly soon, agreeing that yes, the World Bank can give more money, can lend or donate as grant aid more money than it has been. And that I think would be face saving for China.
0: Recently, Japan, India, and France announced the formation of a creditors committee made up of governments that have lent to Sri Lanka, and they are conducting debt reconstructing talks. But apparently China's not part of that group, and, and we know that China is one of Sri Lanka's biggest bilateral creditors. Uh, And yet China played a part in the lead up to the IMF's approval of a $3 billion loan to Sri Lanka in March when it agreed in principle to support debt restructuring. So why is it that China was excluded from these talks? and, And was that the right approach?
1: I suspect China wasn't excluded so much that China declined to join Japan and the others when they decided to put this committee together. I don't think China would be comfortable with Japan, which is also a large lender, of Sri Lanka. But I don't think China would be comfortable with Japan taking the lead at this point. Uh, As you point out, China is Sri Lanka's largest bilateral creditor, and its involvement in any uh, in any restructuring of the debt is going to be essential. So I think it's a sign of frustration in the international community that Japan and the others took this step. It's also worth noting that the private sector lenders who represent about 40 percent of Sri Lanka's outstanding debt have set up their own creditor committee and have already made a proposal to the Sri Lankan government. So there is progress here. Uh, and, you know, China, I suspect, wants to join, but is looking for the way that it's most comfortable with. But if China holds back, uh, I think it's quite possible we could see some kind of of agreement with Uh, Sri Lanka to restructure the debt without China's participation. And what could then happen would be that the the IMF would announce it already has a program with Sri Lanka and is waiting to lend money when there's a a, a debt restructuring. We could see the IMF announcing what it's going to do is what the IMF calls lending into arrears. In essence, giving a loan, even though Sri Lanka is in default to a lender, in this case, China. So then what the IMF would do would say, we're going to lend the money, but we're going to make it a condition of the loan that Sri Lanka can't repay anything to China. And the IMF managing director talked about this quite openly at the spring meetings without naming China as a creditor in question.
0: I want to talk a little bit about the Paris Club. Um, And apparently China had considered joining the Paris Club many years ago, I think going back to 2016, but uh, didn't become a member. And recently, we've heard Chinese officials portray the Paris Club as a platform dominated by the United States. So I'm curious whether you think it's in China's interest to join the Paris Club, whether it might at some point in the future. Should the Paris Club be encouraging China to join? Would it make their job more difficult if China's on the inside rather than on the outside? Um, And do you think China might instead seek to offer an alternative financial architecture that's very separate from uh, the Bretton Woods order?
1: Well, first of all, we should probably just, for the listener's sake, explain that the Paris Club is a grouping of essentially G7 and other major lenders who work together in an informal setting to, to agree on terms of a debt restructuring. And some of the uh, the non-G7 lenders who've emerged in recent years have also joined either as members or observers. China has not. And that's what you were referring to. Now, I think what happened in 2016 was not a realistic expectation. As early as 2014, and I was in meetings where this was discussed, uh, People's Bank of China lost an internal government debate in Beijing over joining the Paris Club. It wanted to do it. And what what. IMF was told was that senior Chinese officials were opposed for political reasons. And I think those political reasons, you know, are reflected in statements about U.S. dominated or, or, or whatever. So I think what happened in 2016 was a concession that Beijing made under pressure at a G20 meeting. And the fact is that the rapid worsening of U.S. China relations under the Trump administration essentially killed any prospect of that. I mean, for example, I know that at a 2019 Paris Club meeting, U.S. officials, this would have been the Trump administration, objected to China's participation as an observer at the meeting. So this has been, you know, sort of dissolving for quite a while. Now, I think essentially that the common framework was a workaround. It was a way to shift the debt restructuring process somewhat away from the Paris Club and towards a G20 setting which China would have been more comfortable with. And and that seems to be what's happened. And uh, while it has not been successful so far, I think the important point here is that the international community is seeking to find a structure that that can advance debt restructuring uh, at a time when China is getting very worried about all the money that it is owed. Now, I don't think it's feasible for China to say, we're just going to set up our own process with, you know, in a multilateral way, you know, that, that, that is beyond the Bretton Woods, uh, grouping, uh, which is essentially the 190 odd members of the IMF. Um, uh, because I think too many lenders are committed and have a stake in ongoing processes. But I, I think it will be a, a an ongoing evolution to find ways that that China is comfortable engaging with countries it's increasingly at odds with in other settings.
0: I want to close with stepping back a bit and talking about a broader issue that relates to geopolitics, the strategic competition between the United States and China has really posed obstacles to cooperation of the global community on a lot of issues, ranging from climate change to global health, and I would guess also this issue of debt restructuring. And I recall reading an article in the Washington Post uh, that cited some of the officials who had attended the spring meetings of the IMF and World Bank who claimed that the US-China rivalry, quote, threatens to block moves to ease the debt burden for dozens of cash-strapped nations. And of course, some experts are now suggesting that geopolitics contributes to the inability of countries to address the debt issues, the the lack of cooperation, again, between China and the Paris Club, and the difficulties in, in moving forward. So what is your assessment of the the role of geopolitical competition in international debt relief efforts? And how do the views of developing countries affect this dynamic? And of course, we know that China continues to claim that it is a developing country whose interests actually align with the nations that it lends to.
1: That's a great question. and And I think the first thing you want to say is simply that it says a lot about the depth of the debt problem that this process, this debt restructuring process, has advanced even as much as it has despite U.S.-China tensions, because I do think that, that there has been progress. And... um I know that, that U.S. Treasury is deeply committed to this, for example, and has worked closely with the People's Bank of China. And, and, you know, kudos to them for what they've been able to do. But the tensions between the U.S. and China, uh, some other Western countries, Japan and China, over debt restructuring are real. Or, and you can also say that the other tensions have been felt here. I think we, we see various statements from, from Western officials. Uh, and actions like Japan setting up this sovereign lender committee for Sri Lanka that suggest, you know, that 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 there are political issues that are very hard to get around. I, frankly, I don't think the U.S. has helped matters on this issue with its accusations of of Chinese debt trap conspiracy, which we've heard especially in the Trump administration, but echoes now, you know, which they say that. China is using indebtedness to seize assets in developing countries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These have basically been debunked. In each case, it's been alleged. And on the other side, we're seeing plenty of Chinese propaganda that accuses Western lenders of various nefarious purposes while claiming nothing but altruistic intentions for China, because China, of course, sees itself as, you say, part of the developing world. I think the reality is very simple. Beijing has backed itself into a corner because of the debt issue. And it doesn't have a lot of friends on this, on this issue as a result. Debtor countries are discreet about the issue out of self-interest because they don't want to anger Beijing. But in different ways, various governments have made it clear, I'm talking about debtors, have made it clear that they want Beijing to move on this issue. You know, you did an issue of this podcast uh, uh, recently about decoding the language of Chinese foreign policy. And your guest, I think, talked quite perceptively about some of these issues, you know, that China sees itself, as you say, as a, a developing country that pursues shared values and an interest in, quote unquote, mutual development, developing countries. And it ca- it I, I've seen it call itself as a a financial partner in in these debt arrangements. But the debt issue really has shown that when the chips are down for Beijing, China does not act like a financial partner, okay? It's just another creditor protecting its own financial institutions and its own financial and foreign policy interests. Now, I don't think that Beijing is comfortable with that image, particularly with its developing country partners. And I suspect that discomfort will help to drive a longer term solution, at least on some of the more visible debt problems, be Zambia or Sri Lanka or Pakistan. But the question really is how much damage will be done before we reach that point? How many people will suffer for it?
0: Those are great insights. We've been talking with Jeremy Mark, who is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlanta Council's Geoeconomic Center. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jeremy.
1: Thanks for having me, Bonnie.